So what I, I became a Christian pretty late in life, uh, at about the same age as most of y'all college students. And one of the benefits to becoming Christian late is that you've lived a whole life already. And so if you're going to be Christian, you're going to go for it. You're going to do it, right? Because otherwise you're thinking to yourself, what's the point? And I was incredibly blessed uh, becoming a Christian very much in a community like Mosaic, where there are a lot of other people who thought the same. And so one of the blessings of being part of a Christian community like that was there was never, never a sense that Christianity was something other than radical. That the folks in this community or the community I became a Christian would never use the phrase radical Christianity because it never occurred to them that there was some other kind of Christianity. One of the effects of that was shortly after I became a Christian, uh, some folks in the community of my college Christian community invited me to go to Calcutta, India, or Kolkata, India, right? And if you don't know much about Calcutta, uh, at least when I went there, it was one of the poorest places in the world. Um, it was also simultaneously and probably relatedly one of the most vibrant places in the world. We had went there, it was about four of us college students, sophomores in college, and I, I still can't believe we did this. But the four of us went to uh, Calcutta to work with, and you all remember, uh, this saint, uh, Mother Teresa. And what we were going to do is work with, in Mother Teresa's uh, various houses. And she had different houses in Calcutta. The house of the dying, where you literally work with people uh, who were on their last leg in life. Uh, people with cancer and terminal illnesses. Uh, very, very hungry children. One of the places we went right away was a place that dealt with, that received and cared for people in their last days who are dying from tuberculosis, right? And tuberculosis is one of those things that in a country with a lot of resources, you don't die from tuberculosis as much. In a place like Calcutta, Calcutta India, lots of people died from tuberculosis. So I had been a Christian very, a very short period of time in my life. And um, we get to this house, uh, the house for these tuberculosis folks. And this is, I think this is our second day in Calcutta, India. And I'm, I'm really hoping they're going to break us in easy. Because there is a level of um, poverty unlike anything, not only that I had never seen, but never imagined. And so we walk in the thing, and it's, it's just like any other building. You walk in, and the sisters of charity, these nuns, these missionaries of charity, come and receive you. And they say, okay, we're going to go and take you to, uh, and I think they, they noticed we were new. So they said, we're going to take you, and you're going to just wash some floors today. You know, the floors need to be clean here. So I'm like, great entryway into this, right? Wash some floors. So we're walking through the building, um, and... And I think the, the sister must have decided something different along the way, but she didn't tell us. Because she took us to the, a room full of men. It, it's hard to describe what we saw. It, probably the best analogy I could think of is, do you remember those scenes where the Allied troops finally arrived at the concentration camps uh, in Europe? And you see human bodies where it looks like skin draped over bones. Uh, it was 
a level of uh, illness and nearness to death uh, I could have never imagined. And the sister not only took us there, and she, um, she said, oh, you know, actually what we really need you to do is bathe these men. And so over the next hours, uh, the men would take off their clothes and we would physically bathe them. I have a hard enough time bathing myself, <laughs> but to touch another man uh, and a man at this level of illness, uh, it, was, it was beyond humbling um, to enter into that. But I always think about that summer in Calcutta, India, and this gift of these men allowing us to be with them in this way as the beginning of opening my eyes, illuminating me to God's world, that I finally began to see 20 years after I had been born what the world really is about. Both you began to see the other utter depravity of our world, but its utter and resilient and resounding beauty. And to be awakened to that world, right, to see how the world is both in its fallenness and in the redemption of all things was to illumine, to awaken, uh, to help me arrive finally is in the world as it is, that is, as it is in Christ. Now, there, there was a song in the early 1990s um, that really got to this, and I'm, the, the song is currently escaping me, but it really caught the spirit of being awakened to this kind of world. That could have gone really badly. <laughs> and um, I said that 20% of sermon prep was um, the clothing. That was the other 80%. So um, I, I could just end the sermon here. Uh, thank you, Pastor Slim and my small group. Um, I got my small group to do this, even though I've literally only been to my small group once. And... <laughs> Because of traveling schedule, I actually will never go again. <laughs> so, but that just tells you the small group is really willing to jump in. Um, so kind of awakening in that moment 
um, to this whole new world, uh, to, to see the world in its dazzling, shining brilliance and reality and its goodness and its fallenness, right? I want to talk about that today, uh, but I want to talk about it in relationship to its opposite. So I, I don't want to talk simply about being illumined, entering into, right, drawing into the life of Christ such that you see the world in its reality. I want to look, think about that and its opposite. And the dynamic for many, many Christians, and specifically American Christians, that we both draw close to that, but somehow we're repulsed by it. That we're perpetually drawn into the life of Christ, but somehow over time, in the slow creep of mediocrity, we begin to lurk further from it. And so the dynamic today isn't what it looks like to fully enter in. The dynamic is what it looks like to fully enter in, but also lurk outside. And I want to talk about this in terms of the life of Judas, right? Judas being, as what I'll call today, the gospel's lurker. Someone whose betrayal arrives not out of, say, the hot passion of a Peter, but rather the mundane, the boredom, and the slow slippage into mediocrity of Judas's betrayal. Now, I want to be clear about one thing about Judas and his betrayal. And this is something we always need to know about Judas. While it is true that Judas's betrayal delivers Christ up to, the, to his death, it is Christ himself that delivers himself. Judas has no power over Christ or God other than that what God gives to Judas. So we're going to need to remember that story as we enter in. So, um, and the other thing I want to say is that part of the problem for us as lurkers, and mostly by us I mean myself, as a person drawn into this amazing mystery, but perpetually wants to lurk outside, that part of the problem for us is that it puts us in a kind of conceptual cul-de-sac. That, that God might be calling us to something like Calcutta, India, we're more likely going to end up in the cul-de-sacs of suburbia. That there's going to be something about that dynamic. And part of the dynamic is not simply that we end up in the cul-de-sacs of suburbia rather than in Calcutta, India, in that reality, in all of its metaphorical reality. It's that we ultimately become defenders of that life. That the cruel part of the betrayal and what makes it genuinely a betrayal is not simply that we slip from the depths of the gospel into lurkers, but we become strangely apologists, defenders of a lurking gospel. And, and you'll remember this scene um, in, in, a, in a chapter that many people consider the greatest chapter in Western literature. It's that moment in the Brothers Karazmazov uh, where one of the protagonists, one of the characters in the story is thinking about something and he's visited by Satan. And, and they're talking about the state of the church. And in the story that this person tells, uh, he imagines Jesus coming and talking to the contemporary church. And what the contemporary church says to Jesus is, look, dude, you just asked for too much. 
You ask people to give up too much. You ask people for too much faith. You require too much of them. What we're going to do, the church, is we're going to give them a nice mediocre gospel. And they're going to go for that. And, right, and what Edoski Hefsi has in the Brothers of Kazimazov, right, is the way in which we Christians fully accept this lurker gospel. And therefore, in doing so, betray not so much Jesus, because remember, Jesus hands himself over, but we betray ourselves, right? We betray the best of what God offers us. We, we receive the offer of full and abundant life with a mediocre and compromised life. So let me begin by, by praying for us. Jesus, we confess that we want to lurk, that we want to remain forever on the outside. We confess that what you offer, offer us scares us. But we also freely admit and acknowledge that what you offer us is life abundant. And so would you draw us into the goodness and truth and beauty of just that. Amen. So I want to talk about Judas's um, betrayal in a very specific way this week. And I'm going to talk about Judas in terms of what I describe as lurking, and lurking as a particular dynamic of American Christian life. Next week, I'm going to talk about Judas very differently. If this week is the critical view on Judas and a critical view on our own lives, next week is a much more sympathetic view of Judas. This week is kind of the what and the how of how Judas betrays Jesus and how we all in our own ways enter in betrayal of the gospel. But next week is more a kind of why, a kind of speculation, right, that thinks about Judas in terms of the terms of disappointment and despair and even depression. We know that Judas's life ends in suicide. And so we're going to think about those kinds of things in the Christian life. I want to warn folks next week that the topic of suicide will be talked about in our congregation. Um, but we want to think about this in terms of a larger story. Because one of the most amazing things about the life of Judas, if you believe maybe the greatest uh, reformed theologian of the 20th century, Karl Barth, is that Judas tells us the amazing story that if anyone can be saved, everyone can be saved. Right? If any one person can be saved, anyone can be saved. So we'll look at that next week. But let's look at Judas's betrayal for this week. So I want to think about three scenes in the betrayal uh, of Christ by Judas. Uh, the first one is uh, this scene in Mark where it simply describes Judas as one of the twelve. And everywhere in the Gospels where it talks about Judas, it always tends to say two things about him, and certainly in our Mark passage. It says first that Judas was one of the twelve and that he would betray Jesus. It almost always says those two things. Right? And it's a funny dynamic because it'd be easier on our minds if it was one or the other. If the story of Judas was he was just one of the twelve. He was one of the central core of Jesus' radical community. Or that he was a betrayer, right? That he couldn't live up to and therefore betrayed Christ. But the fact that the Gospels, right, hold G Judas together as both of these things 
is what should catch our attention. That he is both one of the 12. He is inside. He is fully signed up. And yet it is he that would betray Jesus. And to understand Judas's betrayal, it's to think in some ways about how these two things could hold together. How can someone both be fully in and then be lurking out? To understand this, one of the things you want to think about is the larger arc of the Gospel of Mark. Right? The Gospel of Mark is 16 chapters, and almost at the middle, at the eighth chapter, it reaches its crescendo. And in the first eight chapters, it's, it's the happy, fun gospel that we love. Right? It is Jesus doing his cool guy thing, drawing people to himself, doing those miracles, hanging out with people no one else wants to hang out, giving those teaches, teachings right, that draws us into the gospel. The second half of Mark is really the opposite. In the same way in the first one, Jesus is drawing crowds to himself. In the last eight chapters of Mark, less and less people follow Jesus. More and more people turn away. Until the very end of the gospel, almost the last line, was that they were all alone and afraid. Jesus dies basically alone on the cross. And so you have this movement in the first half of Mark. Jesus is doing his cool guy thing, drawing the masses to himself. The second one, increasingly a trajectory of abandonment and isolation. Just like in the first half of the Gospel of Mark, he's doing his amazing teachings. People are seeing things they've never seen, miracles, the release of the possessed, the ill are made well, right? The paralytic, the blind receive sight. First half, the second half, Jesus begins to act in increasingly strange and odd ways. The first half, he's doing the great teachings that make us love Jesus and embodying it, right? He hangs out even with these people. He draws even these kinds of people to himself, right? He's willing to teach a gospel of what? A gospel of life and vitality and beauty. The second half, again, almost the mirror opposite. He increasingly talks not only about death, but his own death. And in the ways that his life kind of challenged the religious leaders, in the second half, he seems to begin to threaten the religious orders. He begins to be on a collision course with all the things of the world. And, in, and, and maybe a lot of us are kind of first half gospel of Mark people. Very, very few of us want to be on that downside. To understand Judas and his betrayal is to understand him as lingering, trying to hang on between these two halves of the Gospel of Mark. And in the same way like any of us are drawn into Mark's Gospel in the first half, into the life of Jesus, into giving everything, in the second half, we begin to have doubts. Right? We, we begin to have those questions. We begin to wonder, hold on, is this quite what I signed up for? Right, because in the first half, it was all those shiny images, come on in. The second half is that fine print. And we're thinking, is this for me? I imagine for a lot of you guys who grew up in the church, you feel this tension. That there is a large part of Christianity for you 
that has become familiar and comfortable, that you know the songs and you understand the Bible verses and you can quote this and reference that. But on the downside of the gospel, on the se in the second half of the gospel, Mark, you find yourself wondering, is this what I signed up for? And like Judas, right, there is a temptation that that which drew you in has now pushed you a little bit on the outside. And then there becomes this kind of lurking mentality. And it is this lurking mentality that for Judas birds the pangs and the possibilities of something like betrayal. Now here's one of the most interesting things about the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ is the kind of thing that you can only fully see from the inside. The problem with the gospel, of, the gospel of Christ, right, especially as it plays out in the gospel of Mark, it is the kind of thing that you can only fully see and understand and appreciate from the inside. It only makes sense. Its logic only comes to fruition. It only bears out by being inside of it. From the outside, it seems, in the language of Paul, right, not only like nonsense, but foolishness. Right, so when Paul says something like, what I want most in my life is to take part in the crucifixion. When Paul says something like, all that I've gained in my life, it's not only loss, but he uses the word trash or rubbish. When we, when we think about the Heidelberg Confession earlier, when it says, when Jesus calls us into the gospel, Jesus says we literally ought to hate those who we most deeply love, our families, mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters. And so the gospel is the kind of thing that only begins to make sense and only fully logically comes to its conclusion if you live inside of it. But here's the rub. It's also the kind of thing that insofar as it calls those things, it is consistently tempting you out of it. And so the deep tragedy and difficulty of the gospel is it calls you to a life that will only make sense for you to live insofar as you do. From the outside, you won't be able to see it, right? It's, it's this kind of hermeneutical, fancy word for interpretation. It's this kind of hermeneutical position or posture that we constantly wrestle with. But we want to see and understand that the life of Christ is calling to us is good and true and beautiful, but its demands and promises are such that it continuously pushes us to lurk on the outside. Right? And this kind of principle of only being able to see something well from the inside, fully only be able to understand its truthfulness from the inside, it's, it's a kind of common thing, right? So think about something like running. When I think about running, right, it's the thing I least want to do. When I think about people who run on a regular basis, y'all who likes run for five miles every morning, I think you must like torture and pain and discomfort. But when I talk to runners about running, that's the last thing they say. They talk about a freedom and a pleasure, a, a, a sense of peace and power. 
Right? It's, the, it's the kind of thing you can only see and appreciate from the inside. From the outside, it just looks really hard and painful and uncomfortable. From the inside, something else entirely. Uh, similar to something like ice skating. From the outside, ice skating looks so easy. Yeah, I think I, they're just like gliding there on the ice. Like it, it, you know, it's like the opposite of a, like sports like basketball. You're just running the whole time. You're just like letting the ice push you along. Until one time I tried to ice skate. Uh, my, my Carrie made me go. My wife made me go. And it was so hard just to stand. Just like to literally stand. And it was so scary, right? And it was at the Dallas Galleria. We're kind of doing that thing, going around, trying to go around in a circle. But it was like constantly falling. And it was so hard. And after a while, I kept on falling. And I got really nervous. So I started sweating profusely. And, you know, this is an ice rink. So it's cold. And so I'm sweating profusely, falling. And then I remember this little girl um, skated by me very easily. <laughs> and she said, look, mommy, that Asian man is sweating a lot. Right? From the outside, looks really easy. Inside, you're going to be sweating a lot. Right? People are going to be laughing at you. This is dynamic that inside the gospel, what looks really hard is full of goodness and truth and beauty and life. From the outside, maybe it looks easy. But from the inside, you come to decide, determine, and see how difficult things could be, right? So in the first scene, it's the scene of the Gospel of Mark about this upside and this downside and the difficulty of this, this kind of dynamic where you're both needing to be inside but perpetually push to the outside, right? This sets up, this first scene sets up the betrayal which comes in the second scene where Ju I mean, Judas betrays Jesus, here you want to imagine and think about something uh, Pastor Malcolm said some weeks ago. He described the betrayal of Judas with a second betrayal that we don't often think about as a betrayal, and that is the betrayal of Peter. And he was saying that if you think about Judas, you need to think about Peter. And certainly the gospel writers imagine this. In the gospel of Mark, the betrayal of Peter comes right after the betrayal of Judas. In Matthew, the order is flipped. But in the gospel writer's mind, these things go together. And the point, I think, is to contrast them in such a way that illumines, helps us make sense of each of the betrayals in their own kind. And right, so the betrayal of Peter is the betrayal of a lover. Right, it's the betrayal of someone whose love and desires and passions for you run deep and hot. Right? It is the betrayal, it's the intimate betrayal of the stab in the back. Someone you let in as close. Someone who says, look, dude, I will never betray you. No matter what, I will be with you always. It's the, it's the betrayal of the person that's always in, always close with you. Judas is a very different kind of betrayal. Right? Judas is, is the betrayal of the lurker. It's not the hot, passioned desires betrayal of that which was the person who was most intimately in. It's the slow, mediocre stroll into a life of mediocrity where boredom, right, and the ordinary processes of the world 
get in the way, right? It's not the step into the life of Jesus. It is the slow stroll into a life of mediocrity. Let me try to fill up what I mean here and to give you a sense of the kind of betrayal that Judas embodies, and again, in contrast to Peter's own betrayal. There was a film a few years ago that predates most of us in this room. Uh, it was called The Big Chill. And the story of The Big Chill was of a community not unlike ours, people who lived and dreamed and imagined the world in radical terms. This was the 1960s. And these were college students at elite universities in what Cornell West calls the various freedom struggles, called them to fight against racism and capitalism and sexism. They, were, they had sworn their lives to fight against the way capitalism round amok in our world and put under everything under its boot. And, and these were college kids who said, right, no matter what, I'm in on this, right? These are first half of Mark people. The story begins there, but then flashes forward to about 20 years later. And they gather back together and to a person, every one of them has chosen to live the life, exactly the life that they had all sworn off two decades ago. That the realization of fighting things as titanic as racism and capitalism, right, sexism, turned itself in such a way, you ended up ironically, tragically, maybe tellingly, living exactly the life you swore off. In fact, in the movie, The Big Chill, the reason the friends get together 20 years later is on the occasion of the death, suicide death of one of their friends, the, uh, the only one among them willing to consistently live the life he claimed he would. That there is something about us, right? That there is the deep, hot betrayal of Peter but for many of us, the betrayal is the subtle, slow, stroll one into mediocrity, where we betray our most basic commitments. Now, this reality where people kind of, this dynamic where people claim something, but experience something like a mission creep into mediocrity, certainly isn't specific only to Christianity. There are many kinds of vocational commitments where over time we began to kind of take our foot off the pedal, where we kind of slowly settle into kind of our mediocre commitments, right? Where the big call of life reads, meets the reality of just day-to-day -day common life. I certainly have experienced something like this in academia. I became an academic largely because I thought academics were the kind of people that were one, super, super curious people, and two, were going to be courageous to speak truthfully about what they saw, whatever they were studying. When I came to, and I, when I finally joined a faculty, I realized two things, one thing for quickly, the other thing slowly, is that the curiosity that I thought ran through the university, that's why you'd want to be a professor, why you'd want to be a scholar, was often met by the very opposite of curiosity that the universities are kind of divided up into their silos, and no one seems to care at all about what anyone else is doing. 
And so there's this kind of nutty, strangely ironic curiosity meets reality for faculty. The other thing I've noticed among faculty is that you would think that kind of courage drives our search for the truth, that that's what we're doing. What I found over, year, over the years, shot through academia as a kind of conservatism, the opposite of a courageous fight for truth, a kind of narrow way of thinking about the most important claims about what we do as academics. Right? So you see this kind of reality. I, I, I can imagine if you're a social worker, you're a physician, you're a teacher, you see the same kind of thing. The thing that drew you in is not often the thing that sustains you. But if that is true for a lot of vocational things, that is certainly true for something as promising and demanding as the Christian gospel. And whereas in academia, right, the virtues of something like an intellectual curiosity or moral courage, right, are betrayed by their vices. In Christianity, the virtues that propel us forward are also slowly betrayed by our vices. What are some of those vices? One of the most obvious is one Jesus speaks about all the time. Jesus talks about money second only to talking about himself. And in almost every occasion, what Jesus says about money is bad. Right? That it's not bad in and of itself, but there is something that it does to our souls that Jesus basically says, if you want to be, if you want to have a good life, a life of goodness, truth, and beauty, avoid money. Right? And, and as, as Pastor Malcolm and Pastor Slim have been talking about money lately, right, when they remind us, when Jesus says it's harder for the wealthy, the moneyed, to get into the kingdom of God than for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. Remember, their claim was, it's not possible for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. It's almost as if Jesus said to you, right, let's say you wanted to go to a certain grad school. And the grad school said to you, no, if you want to come here, if, you know, you don't have to come here, but if you want to come to this grad school, no matter what, don't do X. You can do all kinds of other things. Don't do X. It's almost as if you intentionally pursued X while trying to get in. It's, it's like Jesus saying to us, if you want to have a good and righteous and fulfilling life, right, avoid X. And instead of avoiding that very thing, you got a T-shirt that said X, put some bumper stickers in your car, you moved into X neighborhood, surrounded yourself with X friends, Right? And then you did the double duty, the double whammy, right, of not only living the X life, but defending the X life. Right? The very thing that Jesus calls us Christians to be very worried about, we've built up an entire empire that is built around money. Right? And, and for none of us is this the hot, intimate betrayal of Peter. Again, it is the slow, mediocre stroll into this betrayal, right? Carrie and I, we were like lots of grad students, pretty poor. But as we kind of moved along in our career, we had more and more money. And we realized the money just slowly crept into our hearts. And we started thinking about things that as Christians in college, Christians that went to places like Calcutta, India, we said we would never be ruled by that. Because one of the things you realize in India is how much the way money rules some people some places 
visits itself upon people in places like Calcutta, India. And so we said we'd never, but we began to notice the slow ways in which this mission creep began to happen. Our own slow ways of kind of mediocrity, our own slow ways into betrayal. Another thing I think about is children. And this is a hard one. Because we Christians want to think, of course, children. And of course, children should hold the most important and intimate places in our hearts. But the problem with children, right, is that children introduce fears into our lives that we would never know except if we had children. What I realized is when I had children, fears began to dominate my life in ways that I could have never thought before I had children. I constantly thought with my kids, David and Talia, I constantly thought something's going to happen to them. I constantly thought they're going to fall off the jungle gym and break their head and die or something like that. Right, we're gonna, uh, I constantly had this fear putting both of my kids, you know, you get in the car, you put them in the car seat. I constantly had the image I would leave their car seat on top of the car and drive off. Right? It only happened twice. No, I'm just kidding. No, I did constantly have the fear that one of us would be changing our kid and then the kid would full, fall off the diaper changing station and land on their head. Well, this actually happened once. I wasn't the person. But I do remember when I heard Talia's head hit the ground from like three rooms down, I ran across the house. You know, fortunately, she's okay, I think. <laughs> my, my daughter Talia is here. Um, Talia is one of the most gifted, passionate people I know, so I think it turned out well. In fact, I, I kind of want to say she became gifted and talented because we dropped her on her head. <laughs> right, children are one of those ways in which a very good thing draws us increasingly into lurker Christians. And again, obviously, children in and of themselves are not bad. Children are themselves, right, are a sign of God's goodness and patience and mercy and beauty. But there's something about our life with them that draws us into this lurking Christianity where we're, draw, we're, we're being asked for something deeper and we keep holding back because all of a sudden we, sign, find, we find ourselves signed on to something very different. The, the way you ought to think about the temptations and tensions around children is this. How is it that you raise children and think about their safety constantly, at least as we do, while being reminded to, that to raise your children in Christ is to most certainly raise them in a way that they will suffer. Because the gospel of Christ will guarantee the path of death in this world. And when you take your, your children and you baptize them into this gospel, that is what you're doing. Now, no doubt you are making claims about the eternal goodness of their lives and the deep reality of its goodness, truth, and beauty. But within the terms of this world, there will be suffering. Right? This brings to light the tension between the lurking right, and the temptation towards betrayal. Think of any number of things, the ways that we respond to racism, the way many of us would like to think of ourselves as anti-racist, but we imagine our anti-racist 
as ways of kind of living through hyperbolic images of racism while ignoring constantly the ways that we participate in activities and systems and institutions and structures and systems that absolutely perpetuate and participate in systems of racism. No wonder then we're, we're tempted to the easy model. I think about the environment, how easy it is for us as Christians to consistently pretend as if nothing else is happening around us. Right? There's so many ways we're drawn into this lurker gospel away from the very thing that we're called to. I'll end here this week by just going to a third scene. I've spent my time trying to talk about this lurking tendency, this lurking tendency that has a grip on our lives. But the third scene is a scene in which God always offers us something else. As much as we refuse to enter in and lurk on the outside, there's always this opportunity to jump back fully in. And the reason is, is because the good news of Christ is this, that the very one who has called you to that life is there to enable it. And so as much as, right, we tend to lurk on the outside, it is Christ that is consistently and continuously, right, inviting us back in. And you see this moment, right, at the end, in what it what looks like on the surface a deep, the, the moment of deepest betrayal when Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. But maybe what we also don't notice in that moment is that it is the moment of the kiss, right? Maybe the moment of coming that close in, of touching Jesus' very body, that also awakens Judas to what he's doing, right? And in, in Matthew's gospel, uh, it says that he was seized with remorse. In other translations, you have who's full of regret. He was sorry. And in some translations, it's even the suggestion of the beginning of something like repentance. That one of the great things about God is at the very moment of betrayal, there's an awakening to something else. The possibility, the invitation, or maybe the re-invitation the very thing, right, that inflamed your heart in the first place. My hope is that you would think both about the lurking tendencies of the gospel, the way we're tempted to remain outside even as Jesus calls us inside, the way in which that happens by way of a slow stroll into mediocrity, but also in this third moment, the possibility that also always remains in front of you to fully jump in. That what we do in the Eucharist is say to Jesus, I want back in. That there, it's not simply that we're lurking on the inside, but in the tasting and seeing, right? In Dante's Paradiso, the last part of Dante's epic comedy, right? We don't only look at God, but increasingly, Dante shows us, we taste and ingest and receive God. It is the opposite of lurking. And so part of what this sacrament, this meal means is the opportunity to say again to God, I want to jump in. Let's pray.